I'm moving into a new set of conversations today. This is five weeks on um, the role and status of women and girls in the kingdom of God according to Jesus. The series is called Knowing Her Place, The Women Jesus Loved. And throughout this series, I think no matter whether you've been in church your whole life or whether you're brand new to church, I think you're going to learn a lot. We're going to dissect some of the interactions Jesus had with real women in his life, and we're going to figure out kind of what that means for us today. We've got a little bit of a problem on our hands because um, there has been in, not even recent years, forever, this impression that, that um, the the Bible values men and women differently. I'm not saying that's what the Bible actually says. I'm saying there's an impression. I mean, the majority of young adults in America believe that the Bible is misogynistic and that secular humanism provides a more inclusive approach to um, life than the Christian worldview does. That's 70% of young adults, 35 and under. That's a lot. And so how do we get there? Especially how do we get there given that where we started was so different. And what I mean by that is where the Bible starts. In Genesis 1, First chapter, first book, first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then two dozen verses later, as God has created everything, God decides to create us, and he says, let us make mankind in our image, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, God created them. Now, I know we're used to hearing this, and so it's a little bit it just kind of goes in one ear out the other. But listen, the idea 3,000 plus years ago when this was written that a woman would be included alongside a man in the same level of importance in that patriarchal world, unheard of. That women would be given equal platform, equal agency, equal voice, equal power, made with the same substance at the same time by the same God, in God's image with the same inherent dignity and worth. It was a radical, dare I say, feminist worldview that the Bible started out with. But things have changed. And somehow, a lot of people, maybe some of you, have gotten the impression that, that, that that's not really how it works in the church. The church looks at men and women differently and, and kind of keeps women in their place. Listen, I used to say the same things. Our mission here at The Story is inspiring non-religious Houstonians to follow Jesus. One of the big issues that non-religious people tend to have about Christians and Christianity is an apparent misogyny or oppression of women, keeping women in their place. I used to make all those arguments. It's not a difficult argument to make. All you need is Google and a chip on your shoulder, and a willingness to be intellectually lazy and not read context into what you're reading, and cherry pick a few verses, and yeah, the Bible is the most sexist document I've ever read. And you, you know, can lead a lot of people away from Christianity if they're not willing to do their homework too. It's not a, it's not a tough argument to make. So there are verses in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, that are troubling, to say the least. Laws in antiquity that treated women differently than men. Obviously, women in the oldest parts of the Bible were not allowed to you know, have some of the same rights as men had. And, and so it really raises the question, is the Bible misogynistic? And this is a question before I get into today's, like, 
interaction Jesus had with a woman? I really think we got to tackle this one. Because some of you, your answer to that would be, yes, you're at church, you're playing nice and all that, but I get your emails. I know what some of you really struggle with and what you think. And yeah, of course, the Bible is misogynistic. Of course, the Bible looks at women differently than men. Of course, period. That's it. And so you can either be someone who's a good person and you, you try to love God and other people and kind of ignore the Bible, or... Um, you can pay attention to the Bible and become misogynistic. That, for many of you, is the, the dichotomy in your mind. I want to tackle that a little bit because I think, no offense, you're being lazy. So I think what's important here is context. No matter what text you're trying to disparage or criticize or critique, Anytime you're levying an argument such as this against especially an ancient text like the Bible, it's incumbent upon you to do your homework and explore the context. And there's three contextual lenses that matter here. I'm going to go through them real quickly because I'm about to lose half of you. So first, historical context, literary context, and then third is theological context. It's very simple. Historically, you just look at a text and you say, what kind of world gave rise to this text? And when you look at the world three to 2,000 years ago, the oldest parts of the Bible written 3,000 plus years ago, the newest parts of the Bible written just under 2,000 years ago. What kind of world was it? Well, it doesn't take much homework to discover that um, you know, ancient Hebrew culture was not the only culture that was a little rough on women and girls. Like it was a global problem <laughs> worldwide. There was no like utopia that was so egalitarian that they figured it out 3,000 plus years that did not exist. Every legal code shortchanged women, subjugated them to a lower kind of class, and in some cases even to a status of property. Okay, So that was global. That was everywhere. That's the world that gave rise to the Bible. Now, there's, there's stuff out there, legal codes and stuff from that region, from the Assyrians, for example, where there's a, a law that instructs a man how exactly he's allowed to physically punish his wife. It's horrific. It's, ho it's way worse than anything in the Bible. Now listen, <laughs> we don't do this exercise to say, look, the Bible's a little bad, but other stuff is way bad. And so <laughs> the Bible's not as bad as that stuff. So the Bible's good, right? That's not the point of historical context. The point is to say, let's be real about the world that gave rise to scripture, to this book because it adds texture to your reading, adds a deeper understanding, historical context. Second, literary context. Literary context says, who wrote these things? And what else did they say besides this one verse I've zeroed in on? What else does this book say about this subject? Clearly, Bible written by men um, exclusively and, and almost entirely um, two men or four men. Um, and so in that way, in some ways, the Bible reflects the culture around it. The Bible reflects the reality of that world. Now, there's other times in Scripture, some in the Old Testament, where instead of reflecting the culture around it, the Bible shines a light on the darkness of that culture. Ancient Old Testament stories like those of Deborah, where she is called by God to lead the people of God, and she leads with courage and fearlessness. 
She leads because God called her to lead. Stories like Sarah's story and Ruth and Esther, all kinds of stories in antiquity in the Old Testament that shine a light on that darkness instead of reflecting the world through the pages of Scripture. And then you work yourself forward and you get to Jesus and the game changes. And we undervalue the way Jesus changed the game when it comes to men and women and boys and girls. Jesus, the ways that he and his male disciples began to involve and include and invite women in the earliest stages of their movement changed the game completely. It was nothing short of revolutionary. It was nothing short of unprecedented, and not just for Hebrew culture, the world over. No one, and no movement, no kingdom or government had ever seen the kind of inclusion that Jesus and his followers brought to the table. And so literary context shines a real light on some of these arguments that people use. And then there's... Uh, <laughs> theological context, and this is only to say, listen, um, even after Jesus changed the game, we didn't take the unsavory or hard to read parts of the Bible out. So Jesus comes, he changes the game. We didn't go back and edit out all the stuff that makes us feel weird when we read it. And we didn't start calling that stuff something other than the Bible. No, it's still the Bible for us. And this is where people get tricked out. Like people don't understand how to process that. How can the Christians call this stuff I'm reading about women the Bible? If Jesus was so great, he should have changed it retroactively or something. No. I'm always surprised. I'm always surprised when I hear that argument from a skeptic or a critic of Christianity and they feel like they're pulling out the big guns when they pull out their Bible and they go, look, ha, look at this verse. See, I bet you didn't know this deeply troubling verse was in this book you've studied your whole life. I bet you didn't know. And I'm like, I knew, I knew. We've known for a long time. It makes us feel weird too, but it's there. It's the word of God. Why? Because without the ugly, difficult, troubling, dark parts of the story, we might forget how desperately this world needs a savior and how desperately we needed a savior like Jesus in particular. Listen, the Bible is realistic. The word of God is realistic about the world as it is. It's dark, it's ugly, it's brutal, it's violent. We've seen El Paso now, we've seen Dayton, we've seen how vulnerable people suffer at the hands of someone with power over them. We've seen it. And the Bible doesn't shy away from that, and I appreciate that. The Bible is not only realistic, the Bible is idealistic. And in the Bible we see not just the world as it is, we see a promise of the world that will be when God's work here is done. And this doesn't make sense without an accurate picture of this. That's why I call the Bible the perfect story. It's the perfect book. There's no hiding or pulling a wool over our eyes from the world the way it is, but we only do that to 
compare it to the world as it will be when God is finished, when he brings us back to Eden, where it all began. All right, so um, that is why context is important. Here's the problem. Uh, even though Jesus changed the game and even though um, we read the Bible contextually, there's still going to be, in every generation, religious guys who use their religious platform to twist the word of God to say whatever they want it to say. And they'll add to it and they'll take away from it. And it's true today and it was true in Jesus' day. So, let me walk you through an example. Take a look at this example from Exodus and Leviticus of a time when the light broke through and shone on the darkness instead of reflecting the world around it. Ten Commandments, 3,000 plus years ago, Moses wrote this in the top ten list of rules for living. Honor your father and your mother. I know we're used to hearing it. Do you know how radical a notion it is that a mother should be honored alongside and equally with the father? Contextually speaking, extremely radical. Even more radical is what that progressive bastion of Leviticus shows us in quoting the same law, but changing the words a little. Respect or honor your mother and your father. Leave it to Leviticus to give women top billing over the men. You never know when the Bible will surprise you. Listen, this was extremely radical, world-changing ideas here. But a thousand years later, at the time of Jesus, everything had changed regarding this law. Religious guys stood up and created what they called their tradition. It was also called the oral law. And it was really just a way for them to get around doing the laws that they didn't want to do. Following the law they didn't want to follow. And they created loopholes. And then they added more rules because they based it on their interpretation of God's word. You know what I mean. And Jesus was not pleased. One of the things that they did is they gave people an out in terms of this rule. So imagine in that world, who was this rule more important to? The father or the mother? Who depended more on this law being the law of the land? Fathers or mothers? Mothers, obviously. Fathers, if their wife dies, they probably still have an income. They probably still have a livelihood. A means, right? Mothers did not. If their husband died and they were widowed, as often was the case, they were, in the absence of supportive children, they were up a creek. Homeless, destitute, right? And so um, this was vitally important to women, this law. It's a social security system implemented by God, right? And so, I don't know why that's funny, but I'm scared of I said something wrong. So, here's what happened. Religious guys took that law and they decided to give people who were not in a good situation with their parents, like, like something went wrong one Hanukkah and they just haven't spoken since and they're like, they don't want to deal with mom anymore and just, uh, they, they can't stand to look at her and all that, so I don't want to give her my money. Well, the priests were like, hey, that's fine. If you don't want to take care of your mom, 
listen, the whole point was for that money to honor God. So just take all that money you would have given to support mom and give it to us instead. Genius. And they even created like this whole term for it. And it was the whole thing where you could get off the hook from the whole honor your mom thing. And this is what happened in Mark chapter 7 when Jesus addressed this very rule. This is uh, from Mark 7, and Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders. And Jesus says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that's what the word they created, it means devoted to God, uh, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. Now, why did Jesus go after this one thing? This really upset him, and he brought it up out of nowhere, unprovoked. Why? Obviously, religious leaders uh, upset Jesus whenever they mislead people and misquote God. Clearly, that's reason number one. But reason number one A, I think am convinced has to do with Jesus's relationship to his mama because it's well understood well known that sometime in Jesus's early adulthood Joseph died leaving Mary widowed and vulnerable frankly and Jesus loved his mama and I'm not saying it because it sounds nice. I'm saying it because the record bears it out. These two were tight. A lot of people wonder, what did Jesus do between age 12 when he got lost that day and went to the temple? Remember that? Learned that in vacation Bible school forever ago? And then age 30 when his ministry began. What happened those 18 years? Did he, did he go on a vacation? Was he retreating in India? Like, where was he? It was 18 years. What's the story? No, Joseph had died. He went to work. He was the firstborn son. He took up the family business. He went into construction every morning. He probably lived with his mom until he was 30. See, that's you guys living with your mom. <laughs> You're just like Jesus, probably. Every morning, he woke up in the morning, put on his tool belt, and went to work. Imagine. Imagine through it all the bond they had between them. I think we undersell Mary. When we look at pictures like these, I think we often think to the earliest memories we have of hearing about Mary, and we think of her as this sweet, soft, serene person. And I've said before, Mary is not a person to be trifled with. Mary's a warrior, I'm convinced. And Mary was a leader. Mary was fearless. God said, hey, I want you to be the one to carry the child of God, the child of promise, the savior of the world in your womb and to raise him and, you know, it'll be fine. And Mary's like, uh, okay, I mean, I'm 14 and a virgin, but uh, what else? I'm good, let's go. <laughs> and that was it. And she's like, I don't know what I'm gonna tell my dad or my boyfriend, but like, let's do it, it's fine, let's go. And she goes and she does it fearlessly and she's singing these songs about bringing down the high from their high places and raising up the low from the low places and she is a force. And then she has Jesus. And if you've 
been a mom or if you've had a mom, that's all of us, by the way. You've been a mom or you've had a mom. Imagine the first tender moments Mary had with Jesus. The first days of his life, skin on skin. Teaching him to breastfeed. Changing his diapers. Mary be like, without sin, I don't think so. Like, like, imagine like all the laughter and the singing and her rocking him to sleep. That's her baby. It's everybody else's savior and eventually her savior too, but that's her baby. And she sings to him and she rocks him. And Mary, Mary is the only one, maybe Joseph too, but Mary had the vantage point of watching God learn to crawl in her living room. <laughs> Mary gave her creator a cookie when he learned to go poo-poo. Like, that's amazing. It's an amazing life. And I think those experiences must have bonded them. I think they must have been so close. She must have cried when he went to kindergarten like every mom does, and she made his lunches every day and kissed him on the way out the door, and he went to school and was home by dinner and like every boy does, and then he grew up, and she helped him with, her, with his homework, and, and he turned 13 and started growing hair, and his voice started changing, and he started to smell like a 13-year-old boy. Even Jesus had that moment in his life, and Mary never made him feel bad about it. She just laughed behind his back with all of her friends, like any good mother does. But he knew because he's God. Anyway, it's complicated. But like, <laughs> and then when he grew up, he took on the family business and he put on his tool belt and went to work every day and she still made his lunches for him and kissed him on the way out the door and he was still home by dinner. Jesus stayed close to his mom and in some ways she directed his life. There's a story that I wanted to tell you it's a little part of a story that you're familiar with from John chapter 2. And this is the story of uh, Jesus and his mom at a wedding where the, he changes the water into wine. You know the story? But I want you to pay close attention to this story. I don't think you've ever maybe caught what we're going to talk about today. John chapter 2 verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at, the, at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, Mama needs some wine. They have no more <laughs> wine. Woman, he said, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. In other words, he doesn't want to perform a public miracle and start his public ministry. He wants to keep doing what he's doing. And then his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now let's stop right there. Stop right there because this is weird. This is very weird. First of all, when they run out of wine, why does Mary come to Jesus about it? It's like understood that when you're out of wine, you go to Jesus and he turns a bunch of water into wine. It doesn't make sense unless Jesus has done this before, just for Mary, <laughs> at home. <laughs> Truly, that's the only way this story makes sense, <laughs> is if there's precedent. 
because Mary comes to Jesus and she's like, do the thing. <laughs> you know? And, <laughs> and then Jesus is like, woman, it's not my time. I picture it going like this. Woman, it's not my time. <laughs> because that's the biggest mistake of his life. I don't know if you've ever called your mom a woman in a room full of people. I'm guessing you haven't because you wouldn't be here today because everybody that's ever done that's dead because their mama killed them. But Mary didn't kill Jesus. She, she simply, somewhat creepily, says to the staff, do whatever he tells you. So picture this. Jesus, do the thing. Mama, not my time, woman. I don't know why. <laughs> Suddenly, Eminem up here, like. Um, and, and, then, and then Mary doesn't even respond. She turns to the staff and goes, do whatever he tells you. And then you know the rest of the story. He turns the water into wine. So what was it? What was it that happened to to change Jesus' mind from, woman, it's not my time, to very quietly changing, without a word, changing the water into wine, like his mama told him to in the first place. The only conclusion I've ever been able to come to is that Mary gave her boy the look. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know the look. The just wait till we get home, boy. <laughs> You'll be sorry. You called me woman in front of all these people. Look, I looked up some examples of the mom look for you today. This is the first one uh, that I came across. This is the one I grew up with. This is Claire Huxtable's look she gave Theo uh, whenever he did something stupid. She should have been giving it to Heathcliff because... He was doing a lot of stupid things that she didn't know about. But anyway, it's another story for another time. Claire Huxtable's look was like daggers. Right? Change your life. This is my favorite mom look that I found. This is a real mom in real life at Disney World <laughs> on the log ride. The reason this look is so disturbing is because this mom has thought this through. She gives the look to the camera taking the picture that she knows her family will look at after. That's next level stuff. This one really haunts me. This is the other one that I found. This is Beyonce's mom look. She's giving it to Jay-Z because he's talking to this other girl the whole game with Beyonce sitting right next to him. And I, I included this one because I think Beyonce's mom look is probably the only thing that rivaled Mary's mom look in terms of its impact and uh, capacity to induce fear in the one she's looking at Beyonce that one that one got me she's a powerful woman just like Mary and then there's this one finally this is Julia Roberts and she looks pleasant and nice but if you look real close you see the mom look <laughs> and says that look your mom gives you when you embarrass her in public but she can't kill you yet <laughs> however she did it Mary gave Jesus the look and Jesus followed her lead. And Mary, therefore, kick-started the ministry of Jesus on earth. He did not intend to start his ministry publicly at that wedding. 
But after that miracle, it was on. And it was because Mary said, make me some wine, Jesus. And Jesus said, woman, what you talking about? And then Mary shot the look and Jesus changed that water into wine before they got home. <laughs> like, of course, I'll do it. It was on. Now, I share this part of their relationship as a little window into their connection because I think there's, with Mary and Jesus, a lot more going on than what you normally would see on the surface. These two were close. Mary loved her baby boy. She held him the day he was born. She held him the day that he died on a cross. She was there. She held him countless times in between. And she loved him. Jesus honored his mama. He honored her by making a living. He honored her by making that wine. He honored her by making her a part of his life and allowing her voice to be authoritative in his life. He honored her. He paid her respect because he understood she could speak for God. So he did what his mama told him. Now, one other way Jesus respected and honored his mama was in the moments that he died just before breathing his last. On the cross, he made sure she was taken care of. He said, John, to his best friend, John, take care of my mother. Treat her like your own mother now. And in the aftermath of that super tragic, painful moment, watching her baby suffer, Mary, being the woman that she was, didn't just ride off into the sunset in her grief. Mary stuck around. Mary helped lead the early church. And this is uh, pointed out in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, where after the crucifixion and resurrection, all the, uh, the disciples of Jesus are gathered together. And it says they were all there along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And a few verses later, the church was born. And Mary was there. Why does any of this matter? Why are we talking about this? It matters because personally, let me tell you why it matters to me. It matters to me because I have a daughter. She's here today. She's everywhere at all times. She's <laughs> ubiquitous. I have a daughter. And I have a son. And if I'm not, if Gio and I are not very intentional about how we're raising them and how we're reading them the Bible and teaching them about God and Christianity, if all they get is the text without the subtext and they don't understand how to read between the lines and how to read in context, they will get the idea and get the impression that at some level or at some point, in some way, God looks at little boys and, and men different than he looks at little girls and women and, and they'll they'll be tempted to buy into the lie that for my daughter, her worth is somehow wrapped up in how desirable she is to boys. If I'm not intentional, she might get the impression that her worth is somehow wrapped up in her beauty or in 
her ability to have kids or in her family connections. And that's not it, y'all. If I'm not intentional about raising my boy to know what it really means to be a man of God, he'll grow up believing the lie that his worth as a young man is connected to how much he can provide for a young woman or, or how much he can make or how big and strong and tough he can be and how alpha dog he can become, like all those lies the world tells little boys and little girls. If we are not proactive about teaching the truth of the gospel, that our worth as human beings is not tied up in our masculinity or femininity, all that's beautiful and wonderful and God creates us different for a reason and it's joyous and great, but our worth is tied up in one thing alone, our having been created in the image of the same. God. That's why you're worthy of the love of God. And if you're a girl or a woman and you maybe have grown up hearing a different kind of message, I don't know that I'm in a real place to do this, but as much as I can, I want you to hear me repenting on behalf of the church for when we've gotten this wrong, for when we've given you the impression that your worth is tied up in your physical beauty or your connections to men, like, no, that's not it. You're created in the image of God yourself. He created you to love you as you are. He created you to love you and to call you to love others and to call you to lead his church and to call you to love him. And if you're a man and you've grown up hearing a different kind of message about God and the Bible and men and women, let me do the same thing and repent to you as well. Because some of you have heard some things about men and women and the differences of authority and worth that do not really reflect the heart of the gospel. You know what it looks like for you, men, to live out your masculinity in Christ? It's anything but macho. It's anything but alpha. It's still masculine. It's still strong. It's still good, but it sacrifices. It gives itself away. It loves without counting the cost. It goes to battle against dark forces to purge the world of this evil that claims us. Men and women, boys and girls, God created you in his image to share his love with the world around you. There's nothing else you can control and there's nothing else that even matters more than that. Jesus changed the game to take us back to Eden, to a place of pure communion with him, where we dwell, men and women, boys and girls, in unbridled celebration and worship together. Would you pray with me? God, I ask you to set us free from the lies of this world.
the superficial lies that tell us our worth is tied up in all kinds of other things and remind us that our worth, our inherent and beautiful and countless worth stems from our relationship to you and our having been created in your image. You made us in your image to reflect you, and when we reflect you, we are fully alive. God, we thank you for that reminder. Set us free from wanting to box each other into categories and from judging each other and help us simply to love the way we were created to love and to reflect you as we were created to do. In Jesus' name, amen.